Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen. Let's do a deep dive on 5G today. Everyone talks about it, but not everyone knows what it is or its implications. And since we are a podcast based on geopolitics, we will focus on the impact of a broad 5G connected world on politics, economics and communications in our daily lives. We will be joined later by Tom Wheeler, former head of the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, who will help us break down the challenges of the global balance of power of this new, very exciting and sometimes frightening prospect. So, Mooney, as Fräulein Maria would say in The Sound of Music, <laughs> let's start at the very beginning. Can you sing that? Gener- yeah, I can sing that, but I won't. Uh, for fifth generation mobile networks, it's a technology that is very different from our current 4G connectivity. It offers enormous speeds and reliability. 5G is going to take us to a whole different level, not only connecting people, but allowing machines to talk to each other and industries and user experiences at massive speeds and capacities. Experts have compared it to the invention of the automobile or electricity in the scope and magnitude of its ability to transform and some say greatly improve the world. I mean, it's being hyped up a lot. And let me give you a few numbers. According to Qualcomm, by 2035, 5G capabilities is going to produce $12 trillion worth of goods and services. It's going to support 22 million jobs and create $3.5 trillion in aggregate revenue. And this is just based on what we know, and God knows, you know, all of the things that can happen, wonderful things that can happen that we can't even imagine today. But will it change in our daily life? A few things. Our smartphones, which will literally fly, industry will benefit from enhanced remote control of infrastructure and machinery. Medicine, in particular, will gain enhanced robotics, and developing countries will have access to low-cost data and mobility. Networks will be easy to build and hopefully to protect Let's think, you know, self-driving cars everywhere, smart cities, remote surgeries, streamlined supply chains, automation, automation, automation. So what's the status of this thing exactly? In the U.S., Verizon launched it last year and it's operating in several cities on several smartphone devices. Companies like T-Mobile, Sprint, AT&T are not far behind. The UK and Australia are up and running. China, South Korea, Germany, and smaller countries like Switzerland and Finland are also active in this. Others are moving quickly in the same direction. So the world is you know, moving quickly to adopt and implement. Oh, and it all sounds so wonderful, doesn't it, Peter? A connected world, endless possibilities, advancing science and technology and education. That's all great. I feel I hear a butt coming. Tiny bit. Until we think of the policy implications inside and between countries that's already flaring up. And then the conversation becomes a lot more complicated. Four main challenges jump out. Of course, the first is the security implications of using mostly Chinese technology and therefore the geopolitical leverage that 5G can give and has given China over the rest of the world. The second is the eternal trade-off of privacy versus convenient. We've talked about that before on this podcast. And also the price tag for countries. And, you know, obviously fourth is what's going to happen with the developing world. Is this going to widen the gap? So I think we should start first with China. Since we hyped this up, Mooney, at the beginning, let's start throwing cold water on this thing. So a lot of people believe that 5G is going to become the largest source of tension between the West, in other words, U.S., Europe, Japan, Australia, and China, and it's the single most sensitive political issue in the future. And the reason is simple. The largest and best equipment manufacturers of 5G technology are state-controlled Chinese companies like Huawei and ZTE. 
And as we discussed in previous podcasts, the world has legitimate fears of spying and cyber attacks and stealing government and corporate data by Chinese entities. And this mistrust, which is especially acute now in the United States, has led to trade deal delays and ultimately the famous U.S. ban on Huawei products. Europe has taken a somewhat more pragmatic approach and has adopted their technology. But, you know, what certainly the, the British government has said when it adopted the Huawei technology, it said it's only for low-risk communications. And they did this even at the risk of tensions with the United States. So the West is far from reaching a much-needed cross-border policy on dealing with geopolitical dependence on Chinese technology and its security implications. The issue of consumer privacy is also at stake. Whether individuals trust governments or corporations or neither with their private information varies by country. It was really interesting to see how Chinese consumers trust their government, whereas the U.S., India, Japan, and Brazil, among others, have more faith in the private sector over the government. You know, there is a debate about when all this will happen, when all this will encroach in our daily lives. And meanwhile, policy lags behind in creating public-private frameworks for data protection and consumers. We all remain careless about what and with what we do with our data. All right. So finally, Mooney, there are tons and tons of practical questions about 5G. And let's start with the question about whether this is just a lot of hype. Sure, like we've suggested before, proponents of 5G believe in its widespread use of virtual and augmented reality and autonomous cars in this wonderful world of, you know, low latency gigabyte connectivity, body cams, ubiquitous internets of things. But who pays for all this stuff? One of the big questions that some experts keep asking is, who has to foot the bill? And indeed, we all know that 5G devices are expensive, and most of their costs are going to be borne by consumers. And beyond that, there's an issue of, like you've already sort of suggested, an issue of equitable distribution. How do developing countries prepare and invest in 5G capabilities? Instead of being the great equalizer, giving access to better life around the world, some people are asking, is it going to deepen the divide between the haves and have-nots? And then there's another issue that keeps popping up, which is a health issue. There's some controversy about 5G and its potential health impacts. City council meetings in Santa Barbara, California, and Keene, New Hampshire, made news by reversing course on 5G antennas until health doubts have been clarified. So as a result, all these questions have led experts such as William Webb to ask if 5G proponents are just casting around for problems that might need their solution. So we have about a million questions for our guest, and this is a really good time to bring him in. Chairman Tom Wheeler is a visiting fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution in Washington. Tom is a businessman, author, and was chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, FCC, from 2013 to 2017. But for over four decades, he's been involved in new telecommunications networks and services, including the adoption of net neutrality, privacy protections for consumers, and increasing cybersecurity, among other policies. And as an entrepreneur, Tom started or helped start multiple companies offering innovative cable, wireless, and video communication services. He was also CEO of several high-tech companies, a true expert at the intersection of technology and politics. Welcome to Altamar, Tom Wheeler. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Let's start with a general question. What do you see as the greatest benefit and the greatest challenge of 5G in our world? Well, I think the greatest benefit is that it is an entirely new network structure, what the geeks call topology. 
um, in that it has, we, we are now substituting for old software-based network. And that change allows all kinds of interesting things to happen, both in terms of um, what the network can do, um, as well as the costs of rolling out um, the network. The biggest challenge to this is we invest in this country based on the ability to generate a return. Other non-marketplace economies in the world, like China, have directed economies. We'll make the investment in 5G as there are opportunities um, for a return on that investment. And that means that uh, it, is, uh, it is not going to happen as quickly as everybody has hoped. But that's not a challenge. That's not a problem. You know, we weren't first in 1G, 2G, 3G, or 4G. Yet the United States and the technologies of the United States are the dominant technologies in wireless activity around the world. I, I want to come back to this last point that you made because, you know, there's a lot of hype around this. It's been called groundbreaking, biggest geopolitical change in, in potential in history. Who's going to pay for the service? How, how is the, because you make the right point, which is to say that we invest, we invest for a return. So how, how will this, will the consumers end up paying for this? It just seems like that topology that a new word I just learned it's gonna it, there's a lot of infrastructure involved in that correct there's a lot of infrastructure the good news is that because it is software um, it is less expensive to both build and operate than um, than hardware so that's a very helpful step but it's still going to be a highly expensive process but again Who's going to pay for it? It's going to get paid for like every other network has ever been paid for. Uh, and, and, and that is that, uh, that companies um, who see a potential for a return are going to invest and they're going to turn around and sell access to those services to, uh, to consumers. So I've, I've read a couple, obviously, I've suddenly done a ton of reading on 5G and found also that in places as diverse as Santa Barbara... California and Keene, New Hampshire, there's this sudden concern about health issues. Is that real? Well, you know, I, I think we have to look at health professionals and ask them the question. Uh, you know, uh, when we were at the FCC, we looked at the Food and Drug Administration, who is responsible for all of these kinds of determinations. And my, I used to always say, we ought to look at folks in white coats rather than blue suits for answers. And uh, the folks in white coats are telling us, uh, move on, not a worry. So let's get political. Many people say 5G is a threat to democracy and geopolitics. What are your views on this? Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say that the network itself is some kind of threat. I mean, the interesting thing is that, you know, I've always felt, I wrote a, I wrote a book um, called From Gutenberg to Google, The History of Our Future. Get a plug in here. Um, and uh, one of the concepts it discusses is that it is never the primary network that is transformational, but the secondary effects of that network. 
how we are using the internet writ large, let alone the wireless internet, is something that that uh, there is reason to believe it has uh, negative effects on democracy because the business plan of the social media providers is to uh, is to divide us into tribes to deliver in secret information to each of those tribes and in the process to to threaten the the we the unum that are you know e pluribus unum that our founders talked about and the ability to come together um, and, and so I think that it is the it is a, a, a broader issue than than five G but generally how networks are used um, and the business plan for the networks being to divide us. So on a more positive note, what is the impact of 5G on our daily lives? We've talked about earlier um, medical procedures, supply chains, faster speeds. How is this going to change our lives? Well, I'm not sure you're going to see it in the, in the short term. Right now, 5G is essentially fast 4G. Okay, um, but I go back to my point about it's never the primary network that's transformational, but the secondary effects. You know, when 4G came out, who had the expectation that suddenly we would be watching movies on our phones, right? And so 5G is going to offer two new important capabilities. One is throughput, is the speed with which data can be can be transported. Um, and that is going to allow things like virtual reality, assisted reality, things, things uh, uh, like this. And the other is what the technical folks call latency, which is the time that elapses between you requesting something and that actually happens. I'll, I'll tell you a story. I, I, when I was chairman, um, I sat in an office at the FCC and operated um, an earth mover in Dallas. Okay, I was sitting there working in the controls of this huge shoveling, we used to call it a steam shovel, I don't know what you call it now, but this huge shoveling device that, um, uh, that was in Dallas. And the point was, and I was using 5G technology, the point was that the latency was so minimal and non-existent that I could control this machine in Dallas from Washington. This podcast is all about global affairs, so let me take us to what the global affairs implication are of the 5G technology. Clearly, the birth of this technology is going to change again the way we look and deal with China. At the moment, China is the main technology manufacturer of a lot of the 5G technology. So tell us a little bit about how you see an evolving relation with China. We now have this prohibition on Huawei. In this country, other countries in Europe uh, have accepted some type of low, presumably low-risk use of Huawei technology. What's our evolving relations with China through this 5G prism? Well, there's probably two points. First is the Obama administration came out and asked 
all of the major wireless carriers in the country not to use Huawei equipment. And um, all of the, the big companies agreed to that, a handful of small companies, I think, unfortunately, and, and it is not reflected well on them, decided to, to, to go ahead. But the major companies all said, no, we're not going to use Huawei equipment because of the potential threat. But I think there's a bigger issue here if we focus too much on, quote, the Huawei issue, <laughs> okay, that it blinds us to the other cybersecurity issues. That let's go back to think about what I said at the outset. What is 5G? 5G is a software driven network. What do we know about software? It's hackable. <laughs> So what are we doing to protect against that? What are we doing to have cybersecurity to deal with the fact that many of the decisions of how the network runs are being made in the network by artificial intelligence? Not even people aren't involved. What are we doing about the fact that when you had a hardware-based network, there was a choke point. Everything had to go through when you could sit there and check things out. In a software network where all the activity is distributed, you don't have that kind of a checkpoint. So what we did at the uh, FCC um, when I was chairman was we were the first country in the world to make 5G spectrum airwaves available. And in putting out that rule, we said that we wanted to have in the standards setting process cybersecurity as a forethought, not an afterthought. You know, every telecommunications standard from the beginning of time has been built, and then at the end, you go, oh my goodness, what are we going to do about the security threats? And you do some kind of a bolt on patch. We said, let's do something up front. And then we put out what's called a notice of inquiry in which we said to the smartest people in the country, tell us how you do that. And then we said, we're going to go to the standards process and we want a seat at the table, not just to have the companies sitting around deciding what they're going to do, but let's have the people's representatives bringing in this information. Unfortunately, at the time, Every one of the Republican commissioners at the FCC voted against this. And when we had the election in 2016 and the uh, makeup of the commission changed, one of the first things that the Republican chairman and commissioners did was to repeal all of these. So we had the opportunity to say, this is a brand new network. Let's deal with the cybersecurity issue up front. And unfortunately, we walked away from it. That's fascinating, but I want to then ask you what the implications are for having walked away from it. Uh, we're going to be playing catch-up ball. I think that there is a growing concern about this. I think the government and the FCC are probably finally going to step in. But the horse has left the barn. It seems to me, just I'm, I'm trying to read in between the lines, that you're telling us that... China is not the only worry, but rather hackers, wherever they may be, is now the real worry. And it not, it's not necessarily about China. 
Well, I think we certainly can't underestimate China, but in the interconnected network, I mean, we've already seen, um, you know, North Korea uh, doing the Sony attack, um, attacking banks to fund their their activities, activities that Iran does. This intelligence community has told us that that election interference has been ongoing um, since the last election, and if five G is the network of the 21st century, which I believe it is. And if that pathway is an invitation to attack, we ought to be doing something proactively about that. And and forgive me for insisting on the China thing, but why are Europeans seem more relaxed than Americans do about using Chinese technology? Well, I think you probably have to ask them. I'm not. I'm not. A, but uh, but I I can uh, I can make uh, the observation that our government used to be able to work together with our allies on a multilateral basis to be able to attack common challenges, and we're not very good at multilateralism in this administration. So I guess in a perfect world, there would be some sort of global regulatory framework to deal with the implications or negative implications. This doesn't seem like it's going to happen. You have just raised a really important point. You know, it used to be that the United States was the leader in building the global regulatory structure. And because of the fact that we have been on this for several decades, don't touch the internet you can't regulate it. You may, you may break something uh, if you do that. We have allowed other nations to step up and make the rules. And who's, who's in charge now that the U.S. has stepped away? Well, the EU is the, uh, is the leading thinker Are they doing and, a good regu- job? and regulator. Um, I, you know, I think that it is, a, it is a work in progress, but I think that, yes, for the most part, they have stepped in to fill a void. The problem is that that void addresses some questions that we in the United States have ignored, while at the same point in time, doing it in a way that, well, you know, it just might be advantageous for European companies as opposed to American companies. And so one of the tragedies of American companies pushing so hard to have no government involvement in their activities is that they're allowing others to make those rules who just might have different sets of priorities. So on the issue of privacy for individuals, we saw some interesting information about countries trusting governments versus corporations with their data. What is your position there as far as what consumers, how protected are consumers? We have gone through a fascinating process that I call digital alchemy, where your (laughs) private information and my private information has suddenly been turned into a corporate asset. The big online companies have so much information about you and me as it would make Big Brother, George Orwell's Big Brother, green with envy. And yet, again, here's Europe stepping up and saying we're going to do something about privacy. And we're still here talking about what we're going to do. Let me ask you a little bit about how the wealth gap affects the adoption of this technology. I mean, we have a a whole bunch of developing countries that probably don't have the ability to finance and pay for these systems. I mean, are we looking now 
I know 5G has long been seen as a sort of an equalizer, but is it actually going to exacerbate the haves versus have-nots in the world? Well, you know, the, the great Muhammad Yunus, uh, the founder of Grameen and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, said, all you need to do to attack poverty in the world is to give everyone a phone. Huh because it opens up all kinds of new act, new opportunities, whether it's a, a, a 3G phone or a 4G phone, or hopefully eventually a 5G phone. And I would just challenge one of your assumptions going in. It's not going to be the governments who are going to be building these networks. It's going to be private companies. And that becomes, again, an issue where we go back to what's the return on investment. I am personally hopeful that we're going to be able to see uh, uh, 5G uh, rolled out um, in developing countries um, as a result of, in, in remote areas of developing countries, as a result of new satellite technologies, uh, because the most, the most expensive part of building a 5G network in an environment like that is what's called backhaul which is how do you get the signal from the, the data from the antenna back into the network? And normally that involves fiber or something like this, which is expensive to lay. If you can do that less expensively by satellite, you might have a new opportunity. There. And is this, is this something that's ha actually happening? Yes. yes. I mean, there's a series of new satellites. Elon Musk and OneWeb and, and, and others are, are launching less expensive low-orbit satellites uh, that will provide this kind of backhaul and, and perhaps open this kind of opportunity, hopefully open this opportunity. Tom, this has been fascinating. Let me ask you a final question. So what's 6G? Well, you know, the fascinating thing is that 6G is being developed as we speak. It started uh, first of this year, and the standards-making process is, um, is uh, one where all of the companies that own intellectual property rights to technology get together and bicker back and forth until they figure out how all their technology works together. I think that we're going to see 6G finished as a standard in a shorter period of time than ever than, than before. Normally, it's been a it's been a ten year process between the Gs. I'm told that it may be as little as eight, although that's still a long period. And that we're probably going to see some kind of a new way, new operation beyond internet protocol. You know, I think that there is at least the thought process in some circles that are working on the standard that IPv6, uh, version 6 of internet protocol, has been taken about as far as it can. And we maybe need to think about a new concept and that is a mind-boggling thought in itself. Well, that will be when we have you back for another show. Tom Wheeler, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. It's great to be here. Thanks a lot. All right, Mooney, a couple of things struck me about this interview. One is how much the U.S. is falling behind and how much Europe has really carved out a leadership role in how to regulate, I'm not going to say only the Internet, how to regulate digital communications. I don't think the U.S. is really aware, the U.S. government is really aware of the implications that can have, because that could shift all power towards Europe and leave the U.S. defenseless and kind of lagging behind on, on everything 5G, which is 
you know, Chairman Wheeler has described is going to affect every single aspect of our lives. Let me mention two more things which struck me from this interview. One is that I come away with some more hope than I walked in about how uh, developing countries can access 5G as he described through satellite communications and so that they won't be left behind. And the second thing I'm just struck by is that the the ease at which hacking is now going to, it's, if, it, if it's bad already, I just got the impression that 5G is going to make it a whole lot worse. I'm with you on the hacking. The developing world, I'm not so optimistic. First of all, they have to regulate what to do with these satellites. The satellites are under construction. I still have the huge question is who's going to pay for it. Yes, corporations are going to build it, but who's going to pay for it? Well, we'll see who pays for it and protect your accounts because 5G is coming. And with that, we'll see you next time on All Tomorrow. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.